Part Two, Chapter Nine of The Man of Property. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. The Man of Property by John Galsworthy. Part Two, Chapter Nine. Evening at Richmond. Other eyes besides the eyes of June and of Soames had seen those two, as Euphemia had already begun to call them, coming from the conservatory. Other eyes had noticed the look on Bosinney's face. There are moments when nature reveals the passion hidden beneath the careless calm of her ordinary moods. Violent spring flashing white on almond blossom through the purple clouds. A snowy, moonlit peak with its single star soaring up to the passionate blue. Or against the flames of sunset, an old yew tree standing dark guardian of some fiery secret. There are moments, too, when in a picture gallery, a work noted by the casual spectator as Titian, remarkably fine, breaks through the defences of some foresight better lunched, perhaps, than his fellows, and holds him spellbound in a kind of ecstasy. There are things, he feels, there are things here which, well, which are things. Something unreasoning, unreasonable, is upon him when he tries to define it with the precision of a practical man. It eludes him, slips away, as the glow of the wine he has drunk is slipping away leaving him cross and conscious of his lever. He feels that he has been extravagant, prodigal of something. Virtue has gone out of him. He did not desire this glimpse of what lay under the three stars of his catalogue. God forbid that he should know anything about the forces of nature. God forbid that he should admit for a moment that there are such things. Once admit that, and where was he? One paid a shilling for entrance, and another for the programme. The look which June had seen, which other foresights had seen, was like the sudden flashing of a candle through a hole in some imaginary canvas, behind which it was being moved. The sudden flaming out of a vague erratic glow, shadowy and enticing. It brought home to onlookers the consciousness that dangerous forces were at work. For a moment they noticed it with pleasure, with interest, then felt that they must not notice it at all. It supplied, however, the reason of June's coming so late and disappearing without dancing, without even shaking hands with her lover. She was ill, it was said, and no wonder. But here they looked at each other guiltily. They had no desire to spread scandal, no desire to be ill-natured. Who would have? And to outsiders no word was breathed, unwritten law keeping them silent. Then came the news that June had gone to the seaside with old Jolyon. He had carried her off to Broadstairs, for which place there was just then a feeling, Yarmouth having lost caste, in spite of Nicholas, and no foresight going to the sea without intending to have an heir for his money, such as would render him bilious in a week. That fatally aristocratic tendency of the first foresight, to drink Madeira, had left his descendants undoubtedly accessible. So June went to the sea. The family awaited developments. There was nothing else to do. But how far, how far had those two gone? How far were they going to go? 
Could they really be going at all? Nothing could surely come of it, for neither of them had any money. At the most a flirtation, ending as all such attachments should, at the proper time. Soames's sister, Winifred Darty, who had imbibed with the breezes of Mayfair—she lived in Green Street—more fashionable principles in regard to matrimonial behaviour than were current, for instance, in Ladbroke Grove, laughed at the idea of there being anything in it. The little thing—Irene was taller than herself, and it was a real testimony to the solid worth of a foresight that she should always be a little thing—the little thing was bored. Why shouldn't she amuse herself? Soames was rather tiring, and as to Mr. Bassini, only that buffoon George would have called him the buccaneer. She maintained that he was very chic. This dictum, that Bassini was chic, caused quite a sensation. It failed to convince that he was good-looking in a way they were prepared to admit, but that any one could call a man with his pronounced cheekbones, curious eyes, and soft felt hats chic was only another instance of Winifred's extravagant way of running after something new. It was that famous summer when extravagance was fashionable, when the very earth was extravagant, chestnut trees spread with blossom and flowers drenched in perfume as they had never been before, when roses blew in every garden, and for the swarming stars the nights had hardly space, when every day and all day long the sun, in full armour, swung his brazen shield above the park, and people did strange things, lunching and dining in the open air. Unprecedented was the tale of cabs and carriages that streamed across the bridges of the shining river bearing the upper-middle class in thousands to the green glories of Bushy, Richmond, Kew, and Hampton Court. Almost every family with any pretensions to be of the carriage class paid one visit that year to the horse-chestnuts at Bushy, or took one drive among the Spanish chestnuts of Richmond Park. Bowling smoothly, if dustily along, in a cloud of their own creation, they would stare fashionably at the antlered heads which the great slow deer raised out of a forest of bracken that promised to autumn lovers such cover as was never seen before. And now and again, as the amorous perfume of chestnut flowers and of fern was drifted too near, one would say to the other, "'My dear, what a peculiar scent!' And the lime-flowers that year were of rare prime, near honey-coloured, at the corners of London squares they gave out, as the sun went down, a perfume sweeter than the honey-bees had taken, a perfume that stirred a yearning unnameable in the hearts of Forsytes and their peers, taking the cool after dinner in the precincts of those gardens to which they alone had keys. And that yearning made them linger amidst the dim shapes of flower-beds in the fading daylight, made them turn and turn and turn again as though lovers were waiting for them, waiting for the last light to die away under the shadow of the branches. Some vague sympathy, evoked by the scent of the limes, some sisterly desire to see for herself, some idea of demonstrating the soundness of her dictum that there was nothing in it, or merely the craving to drive down to Richmond, irresistible that summer, moved the mother of the little darties, of little Publius, of Imogen, Maud, and Benedict, to write the following note to her sister-in-law. Dear Irene, June the 30th, I hear that Soames is going to Henley to-morrow for the night. I thought it would be great fun if we made up a little party and drove down to Richmond. 
"'Will you ask Mr. Bassini, and I will get young Flippard?' "'Emily, they called their mother Emily, it was so chic, will lend us the carriage. I will call for you and your young man at seven o'clock. Your affectionate sister, Winifred Darty. Montague believes the dinner at the Crown and Sceptre to be quite eatable. Montague was Darty's second and better-known name, his first being Moses, for he was nothing if not a man of the world. Her plan met with more opposition from Providence than so benevolent a scheme deserved. In the first place, young Flippard wrote, "'Dear Mrs. Darty, awfully sorry, engaged too deep. Yours, Augustus Flippard.' It was late to send into the byways and hedges to remedy this misfortune. With the promptitude and conduct of a mother, Winifred fell back on her husband. She had, indeed, the decided but tolerant temperament that goes with a good deal of profile, fair hair, and greenish eyes. She was seldom or never at a loss, or, if at a loss, was always able to convert it into a gain. Darty, too, was in good feather. Erotic had failed to win the Lancashire Cup, Indeed, that celebrated animal, owned as he was by a pillar of the turf, who had secretly laid many thousands against him, had not even started. The forty-eight hours that followed his scratching were among the darkest in Darty's life. Visions of James haunted him day and night. Black thoughts about Soames mingled with the faintest hopes. On the Friday night he got drunk, so greatly was he affected, but on Saturday morning the true stock-exchange instinct triumphed within him. Owing some hundreds, which by no possibility could he pay, he went into town and put them all on concertina for the Saltdown Borough Handicap. As he said to Major Scrotton, with whom he lunched at the Iceum, "'That little Jew-boy Nathan had given him the tip. He couldn't care a curse. He was, he was in a mucker. If he didn't come up, well—' "'Then, damn me, the old man would have to pay.' A bottle of Paul Roger to his own cheek had given him a new contempt for James. It came up. Concertina was squeezed home by her neck, a terrible squeak. But, as Darty said, there was nothing like pluck. He was by no means averse to the expedition to Richmond. He would stand it himself. He cherished an admiration for Irene, and wished to be on more playful terms with her. At half-past five, the Park Lane footman came round to say, Mrs. Forsyte was very sorry, but one of the horses was coughing. Undaunted by this further blow, Winifred at once dispatched little Publius, now aged seven, with the nursery governess to Montpellier Square. They would go down in hansoms and meet at the Crown and Sceptre at 7.45. Darty, on being told, was pleased enough. It was better than going down with your back to the horses— he had no objection to driving down with Irene. He supposed they would pick up the others at Montpellier Square, and swap hansoms there. Informed that the meet was at the Crown and Sceptre, and that he would have to drive with his wife, he turned sulky, and said it was damned slow. At seven o'clock they started, Darty offering to bet the driver half a crown he didn't do it in the three-quarters of an hour. Twice only did husband and wife exchange remarks on the way. Darty said, "'It'll put Master Soames's nose out of joint to hear his wife's been driving in the hansom with Master Bassini.' Winifred replied, "'Don't talk such nonsense, Monty.' "'Nonsense!' repeated Darty. "'You don't know women, my fine lady.' 
On the other occasion he merely asked, "'How am I looking? A bit puffy about the gills? That fizz old George is so fond of is a windy wine.' He had been lunching with George Forsyte at the Haversnake. Bassini and Irene had arrived before them. They were standing in one of the long French windows overlooking the river. Windows that summer were open all day long, and all night too, and day and night the scents of flowers and trees came in, the hot scent of parching grass and the cool scent of heavy dews. To the eye of the observant Darty, his two guests did not appear to be making much running, standing there close together without a word. Bosini was a hungry-looking creature, not much go about him. He left them to Winifred, however, and busied himself to order the dinner. A foresight will require good, if not delicate, feeding, but a darty will tax the resources of a crown and sceptre. Living as he does, from hand to mouth, nothing is too good for him to eat, and he will eat it. His drink, too, will need to be carefully provided. There is much drink in this country, not good enough for a darty. He will have the best. Paying for things vicariously, there is no reason why he should stint himself. To stint yourself is the mark of a fool, not of a darty. The best of everything, no sounder principle on which a man can base his life, whose father-in-law has a very considerable income and a partiality for his grandchildren. With his not unable eye, Darty had spotted this weakness in James the very first year after little Publius's arrival, an error. He had profited by his perspicacity. Four little darties were now a sort of perpetual insurance. The feature of the feast was unquestionably the red mullet. This delectable fish, brought from a considerable distance in a state of almost perfect preservation, was first fried, then boned, then served in ice, with Madeira punch in place of sauce, according to a recipe known to few men of the world. Nothing else calls for remark except the payment of the bill by Darty. He had made himself extremely agreeable throughout the meal, his bold, admiring stare seldom abandoning Irene's face and figure. As he was obliged to confess to himself, he got no change out of her. She was cool enough, as cool as her shoulders looked under their veil of creamy lace. He expected to have caught her out in some little game with Bassini, but not a bit of it. She kept up her end remarkably well. As for that architect chap, he was as glum as a bear with a sore head. Winifred could hardly get a word out of him. He ate nothing, but he certainly took his liquor, and his face kept getting whiter, and his eyes looked queer. It was all very amusing. For Darty himself was in capital form, and talked freely, with a certain poignancy, being no fool. He told two or three stories verging on the improper, a concession to the company, for his stories were not used to verging. He proposed Irene's health in a mock speech. Nobody drank it, and Winifred said, "'Don't be such a clown, Monty!' At her suggestion, they went after dinner to the public terrace overlooking the river. "'I should like to see the common people making love,' she said. "'It's such fun!' There were numbers of them, walking in the cool after the day's heat, and the air was alive with the sound of voices, coarse and loud, or soft as though murmuring secrets. It was not long before Winifred's better sense— she was the only foresight present, secured them an empty bench. They sat down in a row. A heavy tree spread a thick canopy above their heads, and the haze darkened slowly over the river. 
Dartie sat at the end, next to him Irene, then Bosinney, then Winifred. There was hardly room for four, and the man of the world could feel Irene's arm crushed against his own. He knew that she could not withdraw it without seeming rude, and this amused him. He devised every now and again a movement that would bring her closer still. He thought, "'That buccaneer, Johnny, shan't have it all to himself. It's a pretty tight fit, certainly.' From far down below, on the dark river, came drifting the tinkle of a mandolin, and voices singing the old round, "'About, about, unto the ferry, for we'll go over and be merry, and laugh, and quaff, and drink brown cherry, and laugh, and quaff, and drink brown cherry.' And suddenly the moon appeared, young and tender, floating up on her back from behind a tree, and as though she had breathed. The air was cooler, but down that cooler air came always the warm odour of the limes. Over his cigar, Darty peered round at Bosinney, who was sitting with his arms crossed, staring straight in front of him, and on his face the look of a man being tortured. And Darty shot a glance at the face between, so veiled by the overhanging shadow that it was but like a darker piece of the darkness, shaped and breathed on, soft, mysterious, enticing. A hush had fallen on the noisy terrace, as if all the strollers were thinking secrets too precious to be spoken. And Darty thought, Women! The glow died above the river, the singing ceased, the young moon hid behind a tree, and all was dark. He pressed himself against Irene. He was not alarmed at the shuddering that ran through the limbs he touched, or at the troubled, scornful look of her eyes. He felt her trying to draw herself away, and smiled. It must be confessed that the man of the world had drunk quite as much as was good for him. With thick lips parted under his well-curled moustaches, and his bold eyes aslant upon her, he had the malicious look of a satyr. Along the pathway of sky, between the hedges of the treetops, the stars clustered forth, like mortals beneath, they seemed to shift and swarm and whisper, then on the terrace the buzz broke out once more, and Darty thought, "'Ah, oh, he's a poor, hungry-looking devil, that Bosinney!' And again he pressed himself against Irene. The movement deserved a better success. She rose, and they all followed her. The man of the world was more than ever determined to see what she was made of. Along the terrace he kept close at her elbow. He had within him much good wine. There was the long drive home. The long drive and the warm, dark, and the pleasant closeness of the handsome cab, with its insulation from the world devised by some great and good man. That hungry architect chap might drive with his wife, he wished him joy of her, and conscious that his voice was not too steady, he was careful not to speak, but a smile had become fixed on his thick lips. They strolled along towards the cabs awaiting them at the farther end. His plan had the merit of all great plans, an almost brutal simplicity. He would merely keep at her elbow till she got in, and get in quickly after her. But when Irene reached the cab, she did not get in. She slipped instead to the horse's head. Darty was not at the moment sufficiently master of his legs to follow. She stood stroking the horse's nose, and to his annoyance Bosinney was at her side first. 
She turned and spoke to him rapidly, in a low voice. The words, "'That man!' reached Darty. He stood stubbornly by the cab step, waiting for her to come back. He knew a trick worth two of that. Here, in the lamplight, his figure, no more than medium height, well squared in its white evening waistcoat, his light overcoat flung over his arm, a pink flower in his buttonhole, and on his dark face that look of confident, good-humoured insolence, he was at his best, a thorough man of the world. Winifred was already in her cab. Darty reflected that Bosinney would have a poorish time in that cab if he didn't look sharp. Suddenly he received a push, which nearly overturned him in the road. Bosinney's voice hissed in his ear. "'I am taking Irene back. Do you understand?' He saw a face, white with passion, and eyes that glared at him like a wildcat's. "'Eh?' he stammered. "'What? Not a bit. You take my wife.' "'Get away!' hissed Bosinney. "'Or I'll throw you in the road.' Darty recoiled. He saw as plainly as possible that the fellow meant it. In the space he made, Irene had slipped by. Her dress brushed his legs. Bosinney stepped in after her. "'Go on!' he heard the buccaneer cry. The cabman flicked his horse. It sprang forward. Darty stood for a moment, dumbfounded. Then, dashing at the cab where his wife was, he scrambled in. "'Drive on!' he shouted to the driver. "'And don't you lose sight of that fellow in front!' Seated by his wife's side, he burst into imprecations. Calming himself at last, with a supreme effort, he added, "'A pretty mess you've made of it, to let the buccaneer drive home with her. Why on earth couldn't you keep hold of him? He's mad with love. Any fool can see that.' He drowned Winifred's rejoinder, with fresh calls to the Almighty. Nor was it until they reached Barnes that he ceased to jeremiad, in the course of which he had abused her, her father, her brother, Irene, Bosinney, the name of Forsyte, his own children, and cursed the day when he had ever married. Winifred, a woman of strong character, let him have his say, at the end of which he lapsed into sulky silence. His angry eyes never deserted the back of that cab, which, like a lost chance, haunted the darkness in front of him. Fortunately, he could not hear Bosinney's passionate pleading, that pleading which the man of the world's conduct had let loose like a flood. He could not see Irene shivering, as though some garment had been torn from her, nor her eyes black and mournful, like the eyes of a beaten child. He could not hear Bosinney entreating, entreating, always entreating, could not hear her sudden, soft weeping, nor see that poor, hungry-looking devil, awed and trembling, humbly touching her hand. In Montpellier Square, their cabman, following his instructions to the letter, faithfully drew up behind the cab in front. The darties saw Bosinney spring out, and Irene follow, and hasten up the steps with bent head. She evidently had her key in her hand, for she disappeared at once. It was impossible to tell whether she had turned to speak to Bosinney. The latter came walking past their cab. Both husband and wife had an admirable view of his face in the light of a street-lamp. It was working with violent emotion. "'Good night, Mr. Bosinney,' called Winifred. Bosinney started, clawed off his hat, and hurried on. He had obviously forgotten their existence. "'There,' said Darty, "'did you see the beast's face? What did I say? Fine games!' He improved the occasion. There had so clearly been a crisis in the cab— that Winifred was unable to defend her theory. She said, 
"'I shall say nothing about it. I don't see any use in making a fuss.' With that view, Darty at once concurred. Looking upon James as a private preserve, he disapproved of his being disturbed by the troubles of others. "'Quite right,' he said. "'Let Soames look after himself. He's jolly well able to.' Thus speaking, the Darties entered their habitat in Green Street, the rent of which was paid by James, and sought a well-earned rest. The hour was midnight, and no Forsytes remained abroad in the streets to spy out Bosinney's wanderings, to see him return and stand against the rails of the square garden, back from the glow of the street-lamps, to see him stand there in the shadow of trees, watching the house where, in the dark, was hidden she whom he would have given the world to see for a single minute, she who was now to him the breath of the lime-trees, the meaning of the light and the darkness, the very beating of his own heart. End of Part 2 Chapter 9